Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Peter Williams. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Great to be with you. Thank you for accepting our invitation again. You were uh, one of our first guests uh, years ago. Uh, we talked about the Old Testament um, and some of the passages in there that are challenging. I'm not sure if you remember that, but that was when we were just doing the audio podcast. Um, so today I'm excited to talk about your um, new book on um, the the Gospels. But before we dive into that, can you just give our audience a little bit of background? Yeah, so I've been thinking about writing this uh, little book on the reliability of the Gospels for about 20 years. I've been going around various places speaking about uh, whether we can trust the Gospels. And essentially, I wanted to get a book that's really short, and it's short enough to be able to be given out to friends uh, who just may be thinking about for this for the first time, but also it have content that any Christian, someone who's been a Christian for many decades, is still going to benefit from. So I tried to keep it very short. I was aiming for 35,000 words. I think I got to 38, so slightly overspilt, but there we are. It's, it's, it's still you know nice and thin. Awesome. And give us a little bit of background just about you personally. Yeah, so I'm... I'm um, English. I uh, grew up in a Christian family. I've been uh, in university since uh, 1989 in various ways. Um, and I've been involved um, trying to research the Bible. And I originally did that because I wanted to become a Bible translator. And with time, I realized that um, actually there was a great need of Bible translators. There's also a need for just people to be scholars of the Bible to try and uh, help build up the church. And so that's been my calling. And I have the privilege of leading a wonderful institution called Tyndale House, which you can find online at tyndalehouse.com, which is one of the world's leading centers for research on the Bible. So we have lots of people uh, who study the Bible very deeply here. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so 
let's just I'm in the topic. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I wouldn't have gotten into apologetics had it not been for my New Testament course and Bart Ehrman being our textbook. And so um, he has a lot to say. I'm sure you know about the reliability of the Gospels. And so um, this was a question that I wrestled with deeply. When you talk to people who are skeptical about the Gospels, what is really the first kind of um, challenge they have? Well, there are many. I think there's a big challenge that people simply don't know the Gospels and don't know the evidence for the Gospels. But I think we probably need to divide people into two groups. One is just the general person in the public who really knows nothing. And then we've got people who have studied uh, religion and these sorts of things in a more formal setting and maybe educated themselves a bit more. Because I think they actually have two different sorts of objection. I think that someone who knows nothing, often they have this idea that everything could have been made up hundreds and hundreds of years later. Um, you know, it could be made up by some emperor, some pope a long time later. That's the, the general idea. But then people who know a little bit more know that that won't work. And their objections tend to be much more specific. It's how does this gospel fit with that gospel? And there's a specific model that people have worked out to try and explain things without uh, appeals to the supernatural. So I think there are two different groups. And one of the things I'm doing in my book is simply saying, actually, everyone agrees, including Bart Ehrman, that the gospel writers really knew an awful lot about the place uh, where these events are set, um, you know, Jerusalem, Galilee, and so on. Everyone just as, as, assumes this. Well, actually, that's quite new to many people, the idea that we can show the gospel writers had a lot of cultural and historical familiarity. So I want to just establish that as, as a starting point. Mm-hmm. I know one of the major challenges uh, that that Ehrman raised in his book that I'm sure you probably touched on was the dating of the, of the, um, the gospels mm-hmm. and dating them, uh, uh, later, um, creates a problem for their reliability. How do you navigate with that? question? Do you interact? Well, with I, the book? Yeah, I do. I actually, I've, I've got a table of his, his dates, uh, in my book somewhere. And I think the wonderful thing is uh, here we are, you know, Ehrman's dates, uh, on page 48, and um, the wonderful thing is I say, OK, let's let's go with his dates. I think they're, they're too late, but let, let's go with his dates. Even then, uh, the Gospels are within a plausible memory time. Now, of course, he he would make the argument that it doesn't take long to corrupt the memory. I would make the argument that my granny's 98 and she can remember things from the Second World War um, uh, like they were yesterday. So I think that. You can play the length of time either way. My argument in the book is that we can make a case that the Gospels are first generation documents. I'm not interested in putting particular dates on them, but also that we can show that there's really good material in here. Uh, We can explain one Gospel and another Gospel and how they have subtle agreements with each other best by assuming that they're both speaking the truth. Uh, He doesn't have an explanation for those sorts of agreements you get between the Gospels. So I'd want to say, even using his dates, I'm very happy with making a case for the reliability of the Gospels. I think you can make an argument that they're earlier than he says. Mm -hmm. Um, Another objection I know that comes up is who wrote the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we assume Matthew because his name Matthew, uh, but that's there's a little dispute 
um, in that? How do you navigate that in your in your book? Well, I mean, if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Mark and Luke would be nobodies if it weren't for their gospels. So it's a bit like J.K. Rowling. She would be nobody if people hadn't read her works about Harry Potter and so on. So it's it's Mark and Luke, the Gospels, that make Mark and Luke, the authors, famous. So there's no motive you can have for putting the names Mark and Luke on because they're not even one of the 12 disciples. Matthew and John, it's different. They are <clears throat> from the 12 disciples. But in Matthew, uh, I show in my book how Matthew is said to be a tax collector. But hey, there's a huge amount of financial interest in uh uh, Matthew's gospel, things that you don't get mentioned elsewhere, the, the treasures of the wise men, the price paid to the bribe, paid to the guards, the bribe uh, money given to Judas and so on. These are the sorts of things you're getting in Matthew's gospel. It really fits. Likewise, John's gospel uh, seems to be by an eyewitness. And uh, when you work through the plausible people that it can be, who can be at all of those events, you can make a very good case. It's John. The other thing I'd say is that there is a standard attribution, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and all four Gospels, that is best explained if that's been there from the beginning. The Gospels aren't anonymous. Uh, they've been uh, circulated with those names as far as back as we can go. So I think the, the case you can make for John's Gospel is stronger being by John is stronger than you can make for Plato's dialogues being by Plato. I mean, if you if you look at the manuscript evidence for John and for Plato and when things are said to be by them, you can actually make a, a case that actually you've got more evidence for John than you have for Plato. And yet people were quite happy to accept that Plato wrote this and, 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 and so on. With many classical works, people just accept it. So I'd say if you, if you forget the um, sort of culture wars that people have about skepticism versus believing and so on actually and and just look at it like you would a a classical or historical work you would not be having this conversation you'd say yeah that makes sense it's 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 realistic mm -hmm. i know one of the challenges with the dating um is the temple uh the destruction of the temple so people would say well because they deny the supernatural aspect that it had to be dated later because yeah. how would they have known uh, mm -hmm. the prophecy? Um, how do you engage with that? Well, I mean, again, I, just just very briefly, but but it, if Jesus is the son of God, there isn't much of a problem him knowing the future. So if people want to bring in their secular presuppositions, their secular presuppositions say prophecy can't happen. In a sense, it's junk in, junk out. I mean, like, like just with any coding or whatever it is, the input has to find the output. So if they say that there can be no miracle, then of course they're going to conclude there was no prophecy. That's not an argument. That's just starting with your presuppositions. But what I want to say is when you look at the person of Jesus presented in the Gospels, there's a whole load of converging lines of evidence that he really is someone absolutely remarkable. Uh, he is the first person to whom is attributed the positive form of the golden rule. Do unto others what you'd have them do to you. He he teaches amazing parables. And if it wasn't him who made them up, he had amazingly inventive disciples who gave him all the credit, uh, which is a far more complex hypothesis than supposing that there was one genius in the first place, because you have to invent multiple super generous geniuses who come up with these ideas and then attribute them all to the same person. I mean, it, it, it starts becoming absurd. But also Jesus died 
not just according to the Gospels, but also according to the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, he died on the eve of Passover. That's the greatest time of uh, when the Jews remember their greatest deliverance. Uh, when he died, there's an, um, uh, on, you know, on the third day, there is no body. There's an empty tomb. And there are many people, varied people who say they've seen him. Uh, you know, morning and evening in town, out of town, Judea, Galilee, men, women, all sorts of uh, different groups. And when you start trying to put this all together and also the fact that his death seems to fulfill so much of the expectation that is already built up in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, which are remarkable things in themselves. And you start saying, actually, what we've got with Jesus is we've got these converging patterns of something remarkable. So when we appeal to miracles like Jesus predicting the um, the destruction of the temple, we're not appealing to things that spoil the pattern of predictable science. We're actually saying, no, there is a pattern made by Jesus himself. He is the pattern. He's the center of the pattern. So I don't believe in random miracles. I don't believe in meaningless miracles. I believe every miracle has a meaning. And so what we have with the um, the New Testament miracles is we have a strong converging pattern signal pointing to how Jesus is remarkable. Mm -hmm. What for you was the most challenging portion of your book to write as it relates to the reliability of the New Testament? I think one of the biggest challenges... Yeah, for me, one of the biggest challenges, just to, to make it brief, I mean, I had to leave out uh, uh, lots of things. And uh, there was a, a very brief chapter I did on contradictions. I would love to have made that longer, uh, but uh, I just left it as it was very brief, showing how actually Jesus sometimes deliberately uses contradictions as a way of teaching. It, you know, we know that good teachers use what's called paradox. And uh, Jesus says in John's gospel, both I didn't, you know, didn't come to judge the world and for judgment I came into the world. He says both of them. And he does things like this, you know, uh, I judge no one yet, even if I do judge. Um, so you get these sorts of sayings. And I say, look, if Jesus on his own lips is allowed to say two contrary things um not completely contrary but but at least at the linguistic level they're caught their contrary they're, they're a paradox then uh but actually you're meant to recognize from that if you think that there's some deeper truth we're supposed to explore from that why would we think that if i've got one text that i struggle to fit together with another text across say two different gospels that the only rational thing to do is to suppose that these are uh, loggerheads with each other rather than that these two are actually trying to invite me to think more deeply about some deeper truth so i think the problem with this whole idea of contradictions is it's become a point scoring exercise where you know uh, skeptics put out on the web their lists of contradictions in the bible they've never really looked that closely um, at um, the message uh, that, that there is behind these and christians can have a knee-jerk reaction to try and give simplistic answers when actually the christian message is saying there's lots of simple things here, but also there's lots of very deep things here. So our aim is not to give too quick, quick a fix to issues, but actually to say um, there's an invitation here in the scriptures to explore the wonderful truths they contain. Mm -hmm. That's helpful because that's the first that's one of the first objections you get uh, for people who want to dismiss the scriptures is it's full of contradictions. 
Mm-hmm. And it's always funny because sometimes you say, well, name one, and they can't <laughs> actually yeah. give you one. Um, so, well, uh, And I would I would say, you know, uh, uh, name 10, because um, naming one doesn't really show you very much. So Charles Dickens began his work, The Tale of Two Cities. He said, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's his opening sentence. Now, no one shuts the book at that point and says, well, this guy clearly doesn't know how to write. Um it's just nonsense. Actually, you say, well, I wonder what he means by that. And I think that people need to come to the Gospels, come to the Bible with the attitude, I wonder what's meant by that, rather than, oh, is there something I can try and catch out a Christian on? Um, so I think we need, you know, you've got to come with the right attitude to these texts. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the Gospels, for you, outside of what was the most challenging thing to write, what's the most challenging thing as far as the objection to the reliability of the Gospels? Well, I mean, one of the biggest uh, problems often comes up, in fact, uh, around Christmas time, people mention, of course, the census that you have in Luke chapter two, where it's uh, said to be in the time of Quirinius. Now, one of the things here is simply we don't know enough. But um, there is this question about whether Quirinius was governor at the right time. and what you've got to remember here is we've got one source, which is Luke, and we've got another source, which is Josephus. And they don't obviously fit together. Um, but if one of them has to be wrong, why do I have to say Luke got it wrong? Why can't I say Josephus got it wrong? So I'd want to say that's the worst problem you get to, possibly in the New Testament, is that one um, uh, text in New Testament doesn't fit with a text outside the old, the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean I think we need to um, uh, throw in the towel on on, on Luke. I think um, Luke's probably 10 years older than Josephus, closer to the events. Um, I'd make want to make a case for Luke. But there may be ways that you can say that both Luke and Josephus are correct, um, you know, and people write at great length about that. So that, that's a particular problem. But the way I'd look at it is like this. Sometimes people come to me and they have an endless list of objections. And I say, look, I'm not interested in your long lists. I'm only interested in two questions. And the two questions are, what's your most difficult question? And what's your most important question? The most important question might be something that really touches them personally. Um, The most difficult question, I want to say with your most difficult question, look, um, if I can answer your most difficult objection, are you prepared to accept that all your less difficult objections could be answered? Because that makes sense, that, that if I can answer the hardest one, then all the other ones can be dealt with. So I'd say, let's let's sort of set some ground rules before we even begin discussing and say, you know, what would a good answer look like? What will you do if I give a good answer? You know, you're going to read a gospel, come to church. What are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> let, let, let's have that discussion. And I'm, I'm going to commit to them because I'll tell them what I'm going to do. I'm going to be very frank with them. I tell them how much homework I'm going to do, how much I'm not going to do. I just want to be honest with people. And so I say, look, you've got, you've got this objection. If I can really give you an answer to that, are you prepared to accept that the other ones can be dealt with? Because I think that's that's what people should honestly do. I sometimes have in public, people ask me, you know, I say, I've got two questions. I say, great, ask me the more difficult one. You know, I, I don't want both questions. I want you. And, and sometimes I've, I've had them say, no, you choose. And I say, no, you choose, because then you're saying this is the more difficult one. Because um, otherwise people, some people have are not actually sincerely inquiring. They just, just simply want to have a huge list of questions and they just keep the Christian very busy, you know, on 
you know, scurrying around trying to find answers. And and I think no, we we've got to discuss in an honest way. That's that's from both sides, and that means we have to commit, and we have to commit to doing the homework to to give good answers. But likewise, you know, uh, we're asking people, look, if you're sincere about this, you're you're not going to dash off, um, you know, without waiting for an answer. Mm-hmm. Also applies online. You know, I mean, there are plenty of not very sincere people online. And, you know, one of the hallmarks is they don't wait around for an answer. They're not actually interested in any of that. Mm-hmm. I think that's helpful in, in everyday engagement for people who are, are trying to engage people, trying to give a defense, but also trying to be strategic and wise with the way they engage people. So I appreciate that that advice. Um one of the things that comes to mind when I think about the reliability of the New Testament, I think about um, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had uh, Dr. Dan Wallace on and we talked about that. And he talked about how that text has been moved around in the New Testament mm-hmm. over years. It wasn't always in um, in John. For those who are thinking about that and saying, if this is in there, and I mean, when you look in your Bible, there's usually a note that this wasn't in um, the the original manuscript. Um, why should I trust the other portions of it if this could be added? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's 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 a great passage, but I don't think it's part of uh, John's gospel. And. One way I look at it is that that passage is actually a very good argument for the reliability of the Gospels. And the, the way it works is this, uh, that the first printed Greek, uh, entire printed and published Greek New Testament was by Erasmus about, um, well, in 1516. Uh, so, you know, 500 years ago. And he had only two manuscripts of the Gospels and he's his manuscript, he actually said explicitly that that passage is not in the majority of manuscripts that are available to him. Now, he had other ones, but he only used two in his edition. And we've had more manuscripts come to light over the last 500 years, earlier manuscripts, and the situation with the evidence hasn't changed. So it's not that, oh, no, there's suddenly been a discovery that this is not in. Actually, if you look right down the history of the church, most manuscripts, most commentaries, most uh, church lectionary systems, the liturgy and so on, don't contain this passage. So why uh, why is it in our Bibles? Well, I think it, it certainly um, is an early passage and it was in the Latin Bibles and it was in some of the Greek ones. And that meant that at the time of the Reformation, when Erasmus was making his edition, he, he was a Catholic, uh, he wasn't going to take something out of the Latin Bible uh, when he could find it in some of the Greek manuscripts. So, so of course, he left that in. Um, but I w- I'd want to say the great thing about this is in a passage like that, and Dr. Dan Wallace already explained that it's actually found in various places in New Testament manuscripts, you get, if you like, a bit of a, an explosion, a bit of chaos in the manuscripts. What's that show you? Firstly, it shows you there's been no central power controlling all of these uh, manuscripts. There's no uh, pope. There's no Greek Orthodox patriarch. There's no emperor who's controlling all the manuscripts. The manuscripts are in different monasteries, different places. No one's uh, controlling it. That's really good news because that means that 
we don't there's been no cover-up anywhere and so it's in that passage and also at the end of mark where you've got another uh, 12 verse passage that, that's um, un uncertain those are the only two places where you have anything of that length where there's um there's doubt and the great thing is they were known 500 years ago we've discovered many more manuscripts nothing new like that is coming up and so we're able to say that um if future discoveries are anything like past discoveries will be and we've had 500 years of discovery so we should think you know uh future discoveries should be somewhat predictable if they're anything like the pattern in the past we are not expecting any other passage to become uncertain so i'd want to say in a sense those two passages provide a very good control sample because they show to us that if someone does tamper with something we get um a bit of a chaotic pattern in manuscripts you know at the end of mark some have have the longer ending some have a shorter ending some have a longer and a shorter ending some have no ending um and that's great because that that shows there's no central control so i'm quite encouraged overall because i i would say a passage like that is early but uh it's not part of the original and it shows us that um people can't tamper with the text in the middle ages or earlier and not have that show up in our manuscripts today we've got manuscripts from all over the place that are in different legal jurisdictions and have been in different legal jurisdictions in the past there's never been anyone in history an emperor pope or anyone who's able to control everyone's bibles and that's really encouraging yeah that's a, a helpful way uh, a way i've never thought to look at it um because i know it is a challenge for many um like you mentioned the longer ending the mark mm -hmm. and um the woman caught in the act of adultery it's interesting though that the woman caught in the act of adultery is one of the most famous passages of mm -hmm. scripture that's that everybody loves because it shows well i mean uh, and i think it's it's a a passage which is um very reflective it, it thinks deeply about uh, the old testament i'm not saying it's not a genuine event um i'm just saying it's it's not part of um the earliest form of john's gospel um so you know if i i'm i'm teaching from that passage i want to teach how the passage flows from chapter seven through to eight i want people to to get that but it's um you know i'm i certainly don't want to um you know attack christians who defend that passage in fact the way i wrote the book was deliberately so that christians whatever their view is on these sorts of things can unite round the fact that um you know we can have confidence in the text of the gospels and a passage like that doesn't make the other passages uncertain or less certain it's a bit like if you're uh, listening to someone's talk and you miss a phrase it doesn't make all of the other phrases in the talk uncertain if you miss a bit of a film it doesn't make all of the rest of the film uncertain and so there's this slightly crazy logic that people have adopted that somehow uh someone's uncertainty about this passage creates uncertainty for instance about the opening of john's gospel well look the opening of john's gospel in all the manuscripts is incredibly solid we know exactly the sequence of words um they've been you know recited for for ages in all sorts of different countries in all sorts of different translations you know you, you can't change any of them so i'd want to say focus on 
the evidence we have for so much which is um, unchanged. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Um, for those who want to uh, to uh, get your book, how can they get your book? Well, there's this thing called uh, Amazon, uh, although it seems to be running out. So it's called Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, and uh, it's also available from uh, Crossway, the publisher, from Mardell, uh, from various other uh, outlets. So, you know, lots of ways of, of purchasing it online and you can even buy bulk and, and get some um, discount because I do think it's the sort of thing you can give out to uh, friends uh, and uh, relatives and just anyone who's who's inquiring. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Well, before we go, I want to give you the last word. What do you want to say about the book that you haven't already said that's important to our listeners? And after that, tell us how people can connect with you on social media. So uh, w what I'm really excited about is the person of Jesus. And, you know, the reason I think we need to trust the Gospels is because they are how we find out uh, about Jesus. So I'm very excited to get people reading the Gospels and above all, you know, recognize that the word of God is very special. It only takes about nine hours to read all of the Gospels. So I'd say start by reading that uh, and, you know, read this book as an accompaniment to show you how they're trustworthy. But the evidence is there within the Gospels. As for social media, my main medium is Twitter. So I'm Dr. PJ Williams. So that's DR, no dot, PJ Williams. Um, um, or you, you begin with the at sign and uh, I try and tweet a few times a week and uh, do some quite long threads sometimes. Yes, your uh, your thread on uh, David and Goliath was really uh, helpful. I enjoyed that. Glad you enjoyed <laughs> it. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Williams. And I hope uh, people will uh, get your book. Uh, this has been a very rich conversation and I appreciate your time so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.